Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Terry Johnson. Let's start our sermon with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the blessing that we have of being able to come before your throne and to ask for your presence in our lives. We come, Father, heavy laden with so many of the things that have occurred to us over the past seven days since we last met in fellowship. And Lord, we lay that before your altar, knowing that it's you who takes away all of our burdens, for you claim that it is your load that is light. And so, Father, we want to take up your cross and to share it because of the lightness of being that comes from being purpose-driven and satisfied by who we are in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Lord, as we open up the Word today, may the living Word speak to our hearts and draw us closer to you, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I want you to come with me to the book of John and John chapter 18. And we're going to talk about a story that many of you know, but you probably know it better from the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that's the story of where Jesus is actually arrested, arrested on the night that he goes into judgment. And in the stories that we have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is clear that the writers of those three books want us to recognize the treachery, the treasonous activity that Judas was involved in. They want to emphasize the prophetic understanding of the Old Testament and Judas and how he actually is the enabler of those prophetic statements. They want to emphasize that Judas had opportunity to say no to the devil speaking to him, but that he went ahead and did what he did. They emphasize the fact that when Judas comes and speaks to Jesus, he leans forward, he kisses Jesus, and in kissing Jesus, he identifies Jesus for who he is. But then we come to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And when we come to John, we recognize that John, who calls himself the Beloved, who also chooses not to identify himself as John whenever he is a part of the story, wants to share a different context of how Judas came to identify Jesus. Instead of putting all of the emphasis on Judas, he puts the emphasis on Jesus and who Jesus is. And so the story that comes out in John chapter 18, which is where I want you to go right now, is vastly different from what we see in the other Gospels. John chapter 18 and verse 1. When Jesus had finished praying, and remember that John chapter 17 is that beautiful prayer where Jesus is praying to God and he's saying, Lord, help me to help the people become unified, one, because of me. He left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, we are told throughout the scriptures that this olive grove was the place that Jesus actually enjoyed going to on a regular basis. It was no secret that this is where Jesus actually went. And we can see that it was no secret by the way that Judas actually comes to Jesus. In verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. 
So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, I want you to take in, into consideration what this must have looked like. Jesus and the 11 disciples are standing in an olive grove. Remember that three of them had come with Jesus as he walked away from the rest of them. They had fallen asleep, and Jesus was actually by himself with three disciples who were asleep, and the other disciples further away in the olive grove so that it didn't even look like a rabble. It didn't even look like a crowd. And yet Judas, who knew the peaceful, gentle nature of Jesus, when he went to the priests, got paid his money. When he came to Jesus, he knew where he would find Jesus, and he doesn't come alone. He comes with a group of men who have torches and who have weapons. And they would have known who Jesus was. They knew that Jesus, when he was standing in front of the people, would preach with grace, with gentleness, with humility. They knew that the people, when they came to Jesus, were being healed. And yet this group of men decide that they were not going to be able to take Jesus without force. And so Judas brings them together, a detachment of soldiers and some officials, and they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. I want you to think about that. Just picture it in your mind and dwell a little bit on what you're seeing in your mind. Peaceful, gentle Jesus, standing at the front of his 11 disciples. Judas, coming with the rabble, armed to the teeth to arrest a gentle teacher. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, that's good to know, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? I, I love the fact that Jesus doesn't doesn't shy away from the situation. He actually, he actually comes to the front and says, okay, who is it that you're actually looking for at this time of night when we are here gently together praying to God? That's really what he was asking. And he's asking it of the priests and of the officials who knew him. And Ellen White tells us in the book Desire of Ages that those priests and officials had been given time after time opportunities to accept Jesus as the Messiah, to accept Jesus as the Son of God, and that his heart grieved every time that they rejected him. Because each and every moment that they rejected him solidified the door that closed in essence of probation for them. And Jesus comes to them again and in essence is asking them, who is it that you're seeking? Hoping that they would know that they were truly seeking the Son of God. But look at the response that they give. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied in verse 5. It's not Judas that actually stands forward and says who they're looking for. It's the crowd as a whole that says Jesus of Nazareth is whom we're looking for. And Jesus answers and says, I am he. Now I want you to see the words that are being used here. Because as soon as he says, I am he, the Bible says, 
Judas the traitor was standing there with them, and when Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground, and again he asked them, who is it that you want? Now, I don't know about you, but if anybody asks me, who are you, I'm usually very happy to let them know that my name is Terry Johnson. I am the son of a pastor, the grandson of another pastor, and the great-grandson of the first Mauritian lay pastor. I have a lot of joy in being identified with a lineage of Seventh-day Adventist ministers since 1917. So 103 years of Seventh-day Adventist ministers are represented in the work that I do. But when I speak and I say, hi, my name is Terry Johnson, I never have the situation where people fall back and fall to the ground as a result of what I've said. And what we see here is that as Jesus speaks to this crowd of weapon-bearing men late at night so that they would not have any of the public remonstrations from the people who would have sided with Jesus, they came in secrecy in order to get him. When he says, I am he, they fall back. The English doesn't tell us very well what those words mean. But when you go to the Greek, you recognize that the words, I am he, are part of a very special two-word sentence. And those words are used all the way through the Old Testament in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and all the way through the New Testament in identifying God. I am he are the Greek words Ego imi. And ego imi are the words I am. The great I am. The creator of the universe I am, as Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tells us, as Genesis chapter 1 tells us. And as Desire of Ages tells us, Jesus was the one who actually created heavens and earth, the universe. And in so creating it, he is the great I am, ego imi. And so as those group of individuals came to try and grasp Jesus, they flippantly said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And they were expecting him to come quietly. But in a moment, divinity flashed through humanity and Jesus said, I am. The words of the divine master were clear for all to see. The same voice that had given the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai was clear in that moment. The same voice who at the temple cast out all of the individuals who had been pretending to consume and were robbing the people blind, that same voice was the voice that was used here in John chapter 18 and verse 6 and 7. I am he. Now something happens when the great I am comes. We either fall back in fear or we fall down in worship. And these men fell back in fear. And Jesus then asks them the question a second time. Who is it that you're wanting? And they didn't change their mind. 
it was as if they had seen the divine nature of who God was in Jesus, and they were still unwilling to accept that this truly was the Messiah. And Jesus at that time stopped. And he said the same words again, I told you that I am he, but he must have said it in a very different manner. Because the first time he said it, he said it with such power and such authority that the people fell back. But the second time he says it, he must have said it with the gentleness of the teacher that the people of Israel had gotten to know. And so, at that moment, Judas, who is not mentioned other than he was there by John, arrests Jesus, and as a result, they take him away. And here's where we come to the wonderful Simon Peter. <laughs> I, I really like Peter, because Peter tends to be an individual who just talks off the cuff, who doesn't think before he acts, who is such a type A personality that he believes that everybody is going to like what he has to say when he has to say it. And we need those kinds of individuals because they make wonderful evangelists and often make fantastic pastors as well. But unfortunately, part of the problem is that when they speak out loud, they don't always think about what they're going to do. And Peter, at this point in time, decides that he wants to get into the fray. There's 11 of them. He's the only one that we are aware of with a sword. And let's just see what John actually says. Jesus answered in verse 8, If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. The words of prophecy were fulfilled at that time. And so the disciples actually took off and they ran away from Jesus as quickly as they could, except for Simon Peter. One guy against however many men with weapons that were in front of him, and he grabs his sword and he launches forward and cuts off the ear of the priest, the high priest's servant by the name of Malchus. Now, how does John know what the name of the servant of the high priest is? None of the others actually put his name down. Only John lists his name. Why does John know that name? We'll find out in just a moment. As soon as Peter did that, Jesus in verse 11 commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And at that moment, Peter put the sword away, and the other Gospels tell us that Jesus took the ear and affixed it back to Malchus so that Malchus was whole again. And all of those men, with their weapons and their torches, who had seen ego imi, saw his divinity and how he healed Malchus, saw the peaceful nature that he had, and still wanted to take him in for judgment. Well, come with me to verse 15. Because at this time, Jesus is taken in for questioning. And in verse 15, we're told that Simon Peter and another disciple, and whenever you see the words, another disciple who is not named, you know that it is John the Beloved. So we can see that Simon Peter and John were following Jesus. And because this disciple, John, was known to the high priest, 
He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside of the door. And the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl at the gate on duty there, and brought Peter into the inner courtyard. So here's something very important. John was actually somebody who had influence in the high priest's courthouse. We're not sure how. There is some thought that he was related to one of the individuals who worked in the high priest's house. But whatever it is, he knows the people that are actually a part of the high priest's family. He knows their servants by name, and he would have known Malchus by name. And therefore, when Peter took the sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, John is able to actually write in his gospel the name of the individual whose ear was cut off. And it is through his influence that they're able to come to the high priest's home, walk through the threshold into the courtyard, and it's by his influence that he's able to bring Peter along with him into that courtyard. And then we start to see the problem. The problem that occurs with Peter. Verse 17. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. Notice she didn't ask John because she knew that John was one of the disciples. So it was no question to her that John was a disciple. And John had been allowed to come in without any concerns whatsoever. And so when the woman asks Peter, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? It wasn't a threatening question. It wasn't a question of an immigrant official asking whether or not you had the documentation to be able to come into the country. It was a simple question of identity, of identifying whom you belonged to. And Peter replies, I am not. And you notice he uses the very same words that Jesus, ego emi, but he uses them in a carnal Format. And the reason that he uses them in a carnal format is because we're told earlier in chapter 13 that Jesus was speaking to Peter and that he tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times. And Peter cannot believe that he's going to deny Jesus three times. It's been Peter who's always been standing at the front. It's been Peter who's always been making sure that other people are being brought to Jesus. It was Peter who, when he was in his boat, and Jesus caused the boat to be filled with fish, and then said to Peter, follow me. It was at the time of his greatest financial success that Peter was willing to let go of the boat, let go of his nets, let go of his livelihood, and stand firmly behind Jesus as a disciple of the Most High. This same Peter could not believe that after he had had his feet washed by Jesus that he would ever deny Jesus three times. And what makes the story even more interesting is that he denies Jesus when there's no need to actually deny Jesus. The fact of the matter was that John was identified as a disciple of Christ and John had no concerns walking into the high priest's home. But Peter denies immediately, denies immediately, why is that? Why does Peter deny immediately? I want to take you to a Bible verse that I think helps explain it a little bit. It's found in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verse 14 all the way through chapter 3. And here's what Paul says when he talks about the reasons why we do what we do. 
The man without the Holy Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul actually says that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the natural people, and the natural people are the individuals where the sinful nature has taken such a big part that they have no inclination whatsoever for any kind of connection with God. They may have some inkling that God exists. They may have some understanding that there is a spiritual realm, but they're not interested in seeing it because they can't see it. And as a result, they don't take the time to think about it. And in the Psalms, the Bible says it's the fool who does not believe that there is a God. And then Paul actually says that there is a second group of people. And that second group of people are spiritual individuals. They're not much different from the natural people. In fact, they have the same problems. But the difference is, is that the Spirit of God is actually in them. Now, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, the last sentence, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that context, be filled with the Holy Spirit there is a command that is a passive command. And what I mean by that is that in the Greek syntax, in the way in which it's written, it is not written as something that you can choose. It's an imperative that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will be, you must be filled with the Holy Spirit. But it's passive because you cannot fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. It must be done for you. And then you have to believe by faith that you've been filled by the Holy Spirit. And Ellen White tells us in the book Desire of Ages and again in the book Great Controversy that when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit uses His power to sanctify us, to identify the sins in our lives that make us natural and get rid of those in order for us to actually work in the spiritual realm. Now, that's very, very important in the context of things. But it's in chapter 3 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians that we actually see that there is a third category that's mentioned. Now, before I read to you what it says, that third category really is a subcategory of both the natural and the spiritual man or woman. Let's read what it says. Brothers and sisters in the church of Corinth, I could not address you as spiritual, but as carnal. Some translations say as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still carnal. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? In other words, when you look at the church and you see the divisions... Does that not prove that we're actually more worldly than we are spiritual? But he uses a different term. Instead of saying natural, he says worldly. Because, see, the natural person is just that. That's who they are until they have met Jesus Christ and been transformed by His mercy and by the Spirit. They can't be spiritual. And the spiritual person is just that, an individual who because they have accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior and have accepted the Holy Spirit in their life, 
cannot be carnal. Uh, however, sorry, natural. However, while they cannot be natural, they can be carnal. They can be that subset in the middle, not quite worldly, not quite spiritual. And as a result of that battle that you and I have, we find ourselves as con men and women who actually give the wrong picture of Jesus each and every time that we speak, each and every time that we drive, each and every time that we come to a board meeting and disagree on issues that we really should not have to disagree on. And that's why when we come to John chapter 18, it is preceded by John chapter 17 where the prayer of Jesus is, Lord, make them one. Make them one because of the spiritual nature against the worldly, natural nature. So Paul identifies these three groups of people. And as he's identifying these three groups of people, let's go back to our story of John chapter 18 and note that in John chapter 18, we have the situation where Peter, who clearly is spiritual, who clearly has let go of most of his worldly possessions, and follow Jesus, who clearly believed so much that he was willing to actually chop the ear of Malchus against the peaceful message of Jesus. That Peter is more carnal, closer to being a natural person than he really is to being a spiritual person. And Jesus knew that. And that's why in John chapter 13, Jesus actually says to Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows. I don't know if I, were, if I was Peter what I would have thought if, if Jesus had told me those words. I would have been desperately distressed. And Peter was desperately distressed. He couldn't believe that only a few hours later he had already denied Jesus once. And he had denied Jesus in, an, in a situation where he should never have denied Jesus in the first place. But come with me to John chapter 18 and verse 25 and we see the next two denials. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it. He's saying, I am not. Again, this is not an investigation of his identity. It was a simple question. John was sitting next to Peter, next to that fire. They knew that John was a disciple of Jesus. He knew everybody in that courtyard because they were all members of the priest's family and entourage. And Peter denies Jesus a second time. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. <laughs> okay. So now two people have said, are you not a member of Jesus' retinue? Aren't you one of his disciples? And he had said no twice. And the third individual who asks him the question is a relative of Malchus, is a relative of the man whose ear has been chopped off. And I think, I think that Malchus would be able to identify who chopped off his ear, don't you? If you had somebody coming at you with a sword who chopped off your ear, you would remember their face forever. And I'm sure that Malchus had spoken to his relatives and told them the story of the miraculous healing that Jesus had done, which was to take the ear and place it back on his head as if brand new. It was miraculous. 
And that relative comes and asks Peter, didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Uh, hold on a minute. Not only is he a relative who would have heard the story, he was a relative who was there. He was a testifier of the situation. He was one of the men with a sword and with a lantern. He had seen Jesus say, ego emi. He had fallen back. He had seen Peter come and chop off the ear of Malchus, his relative. And he questions Peter and says, aren't you one of his disciples? Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? And again, Peter denies it. And at that moment, the cock crows. I don't know how you would feel if you were that man, if you were Peter. And you knew that a few hours earlier, Jesus had said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And when you denied him the first time, did you not think about the fact that you had denied him? When you denied him the second time, did you not think about the fact that you were denying him? And why? Because John hadn't denied him. And then the third time, when you are confronted with evidence of a testimony, not only of Malchus, but of his relative, both who have seen you with Jesus, why would you deny him a third time? And that's why the other Gospels tell us that Peter ran off into the cold of the night, desperately disturbed by what he had experienced crying. If you're anything like me, you battle between the natural and the spiritual. You try and spend time with God, you try and connect with God, and yet the natural world calls you all the time. The language that you use, your driving techniques, and in Sydney, even though we've had COVID-19 for the last few weeks and traffic hasn't been as bad, there's still a lot of crazy drivers out there. And as you're driving amongst them, sometimes the natural man decides to come to the front. And you've got to go back to the spiritual man and say, Lord, please help me have mercy on that man or that woman who's driving that vehicle. But sometimes it's actually in your home and you've been cooped up in your house with your husband or your wife and your children and they've all been there 24 hours a day and even though you love them you're not so sure that you love them when you're sitting next to them day in and day out some of their behavior cannot have been genetically yours and you get angry and you get frustrated and you lash out and when you lash out you feel bad because you know that it's the natural man the natural woman that has actually come through and you've ignored the spiritual man the spiritual woman of Jesus's gentleness kindness compassion the fruit of the spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 23 and onward and really what it's saying is that we are a subset. We're worldly. We're carnal. We pretend to be spiritual, but in reality, we are more natural. 
And that means that we have fights, we have arguments, there are disturbances in the church which normally should not happen. And when there are opportunities to share the faith, we share the faith as a carnal being, not as a spiritual being. And as a result, those who are listening to our testimony aren't sure as to whether or not we truly have been converted and transformed by the power of Jesus, or if we're just pretending to not really be natural, worldly, carnal individuals. And so the power that's available through the testimony of Jesus is not available when we're sharing because we haven't actually denied the world completely and surrendered totally to the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And that's what Jesus calls you and I to be. To be people who are so filled with the Holy Spirit by faith, not by anything that we do, that in that filling of the Holy Spirit we are sanctified and in the sanctification of who we are, we are different than who we were without Christ as natural people. And that's what Peter understood in the moment that for the third time he said, I am not one of his disciples. Now we could leave the story there. And we know that Peter actually went on to become an amazing evangelist. The book of Acts tells us that he spoke, and when he spoke and shared the testimony of Jesus, 3,000 people came to Christ. But it was through the moment of John chapter 18, where he was at his lowest, that he realized that he hadn't completely given up his natural being. Yes, he had surrendered his goods Yes, he was a disciple of Jesus, but he had not totally surrendered himself to what Jesus had planned for him. And because he had not totally surrendered, when Jesus gave him a prophecy about what was going to be happening that very night, he was incapable of preventing it from happening. And as a result, runs off into the night. But I want you to come with me to John chapter 13, where this whole story begins. We're not going to talk exactly about Jesus telling Peter, but I want to read you some of the verses here, starting in verse 34. A new commandment, Jesus says, I give you, to love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all mankind will know that Hoxton Park are my disciples because of the way that they love one another, irregardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their financial status, regardless of their status, wherever it might be. The love that they have for one another is so great that the whole world is looking at Hoxton Park and saying, wow, what is it that you guys have that we don't have? And Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said, why can't I follow you now? Lord, I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you? I love the fact that he actually answers that way. It's almost in a sarcastic manner, but it must have been done in such gentleness. Will you, Peter? Because Jesus knew that Peter was actually carnal. He wasn't natural anymore, but he wasn't fully spiritual either. He was carnal. And in that carnal, worldly, mixed-up environment, Jesus was pretty sure that Peter would not willingly lay down his life. And so he goes on to say, I tell you the truth, 
Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And this is where most people stop the story. Because when you read the Bible, most of us read a chapter at a time. And we don't actually flow from one chapter to the next. And yet when the Old Testament and the New Testament were written, there were no chapters. There were no verses. Those were added later on to help us study better and to remember where we wanted to go when we were discussing Scripture with one another. So when you're reading the book of John, and you end there with Jesus prophesying that Peter was going to deny him three times, you stop, but you shouldn't stop. Because John chapter 14, verse 1, 2, and 3 are spoken immediately after Jesus actually makes that prophetic statement. And that means that Jesus, knowing what Peter was going to do, knowing that Peter was going to disown him three times, Jesus, the ego imi, utters the words that you and I have memorized throughout our childhood if we've been in adventures, Sabbath school class, or Pathfinders. And let me read them to you here because you will know them as soon as I say them. Let not your hearts be troubled, John 14, verse 1. Trust in God, Peter. Trust also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I am ego imi, going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, Peter. You know the way to the place where I am going. And so what happens here is that Jesus tells Peter, you are carnal. You're not natural. You certainly aren't spiritual. You're carnal on a journey where you haven't completely sanctified yourself through the surrender to the Holy Spirit. And in that journey, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter, let not your heart be troubled. I can imagine that Jesus would have said that with joy in his heart as he was trying to express to Peter how much he loved him, how much he knew about what Peter was going to do, and how much he wished that the distress that Peter was going to have after he denied Jesus for the third time would not mar his relationship. It is that Jesus that the other Gospels tell us saw Peter and with tears in his eyes reflected the love of John 14, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. And that's when Peter runs off into the darkness, disturbed. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't know where you've been this week. I don't know if you've been disturbed. I don't know if you've denied Jesus in the way in which you've worked with your colleagues, if you've denied Jesus in the way in which you've driven your car through the streets of Sydney, if you've denied Jesus in the way in which you've treated your husband, your wife, your children, if you've denied Jesus because the fruit of the Spirit isn't actually living in your life, the fruit of patience, long-suffering, gentleness. I don't know if that's been the case in your life. 
but I can testify to you this Sabbath morning that it certainly has been the case in my life where I have denied Jesus quite a number of times as a result of not allowing myself to be completely surrendered in the spiritual world and I find myself caught up right here in the carnal world, stuck between the natural world that does not know that Christ exists and the spiritual world that is completely devoted to Jesus. I find myself in exactly the same spot that Peter finds himself day in, day out. And I ask myself the question, Lord, if you've promised the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 with the imperative command be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why is it that I am not exhibiting those spiritual gifts, the fruit of the Spirit in the way that you commanded? It's a good question and it's a question that each one of us should ask ourselves. What is it about me? What is it about you that prevents the church from being unified through Christ so that the whole world is drawn to Jesus by the example of love that you and I share at home, at work, at church, at play that is so markedly different. It's not the way we dress. It's not just the fact that we worship on Sabbath, although that's important in identifying us as disciples of Jesus. It's whether or not we love. And if we're not known for love, then what are we known for? If we are not able to actually show the character of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, then are we just like Peter, denying him and running away disturbed? If you feel like Peter, like I know I feel like Peter, I pray that you will be heartened by John chapter 14, verse 1, 2, and 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For I am going to prepare a house for you. And when I prepare that house for you, knowing that you have denied me, knowing that you haven't actually exhibited the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit in a way that has pulled people to me, knowing those things, I have still gone and prepared a place for you because I love you. I love you. And I want to finish today with one verse to give you hope, to make you believe that when it comes to the Spirit of God dwelling in us, that while we may not feel any different, we can trust by faith that if you ask, you will receive. 1 John chapter 5 and verse, verse 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. So there it is, brothers and sisters. By faith, you can get on your knees today in your family home with your brothers, your sisters, your husband, your wives, your children, and ask for the Holy Spirit to come into your life. And when you ask, don't expect there to be some kind of amazing whirlwind of change. No, no. That's not the way that the Holy Spirit works. When you ask, 
by faith because you ask using the promise of 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, by faith you can believe that the Holy Spirit has come into your heart. By faith the disturbances that you have, like Peter had disturbances, can be let go and the natural man, woman, child that you are can transition from natural out of carnal, which is so confusing, and into the spiritual where God wants you to be so that in unity you will be able to share the name of Jesus and uplift the name of Jesus because you as a church here in Hoxton Park have so loved God. May the Spirit bless you and may Jesus come into your hearts today as we pray. Father, I am a sinful man. I am a carnal man and I acknowledge who I am. And I thank you, Lord, for the mercy, the tender love that you have for me and for all who are listening to my voice. Lord, may we leave the natural man and woman behind and completely surrender to you so that we're spiritual people and not carnal people, confused individuals pretending to be spiritual when really we are natural and worldly. Lord, help us to let go of that and to be spiritual to such an extent that you have filled us with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are manifest in the way in which we work, play, and build relationship. May that be true of the Hoxton Park Church. And as they move forward in this year of evangelism, may their unity be so strong that everyone who comes into contact with them will be blessed and in that blessing will be lifted up before the throne of grace and brought into a saving relationship and the kingdom of God will be increased. This we pray in your name, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our soon returning King. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. This message was made available by Hoxton Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Hoxton Park SDA Church. That is Hoxton, H-O-X-T-O-N, Park SDA Church. This is Live Out Thy Life Within Me by Fountain View Academy. Live out thy life within me, O Jesus, King of kings. Be thou thyself the answer to
to the book reading program of 3ABN Australia Radio. Does your faith need a boost? Do you think that miracles only happened in Bible times? Think again. Compiled by Remnant Publications, the book Get Ready for a Miracle recounts true stories that prove that when we step out in faith, God displays His power in undeniable ways. Here is our reader, Koval Smith. This story is entitled, No Means No, or Does It? Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 to 7 says, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who giveth breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. The Christmas Behind Bars Outreach Ministry had been visiting many jails for quite some time when the Lord put it on my heart to visit the maximum security prison where I had been incarcerated. There were many people in that facility who would never have the opportunity of freedom by society's standards. I wanted to let them know about the power of Jesus to free us internally just as I had found true freedom in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I did not want to take drugs back into the prison anymore, but instead wanted to provide them with the bread of life and the living water that money cannot buy because the price was paid at Calvary. I went to the warden of the prison and asked him about the possibilities of taking the Christmas Behind Bars program and the gift package distribution to his prison. He said, no. I went to the program director and asked him if he would ask the warden. He said, no. I realised that they did not want the big gift package. I thought that was the reason for their denying the program. I asked the chaplain if they could have a quart baggie filled with roasted and salted peanuts in the shell along with a Bible study application. Would he be willing to ask the warden? He said, no. Then he said, no, and don't ask any more. I did not ask him again, but every morning after worship, my wife and I would kneel, pray, and take our petition before our Father in heaven. We said, dear Jesus, we know that you can make a way. Nevertheless, not our will, but thy will be done. We wanted to visit that prison with the Christmas Behind Bars program and we committed it into the Lord's hands. Then we received word from the prison that the chaplain had gotten a brand new job at a juvenile correction facility in another part of the state. We also received word that the program director who we had asked to take our petition to the attention of the warden had a new position in the prison. He was in the recreation department and was no longer in charge of which programs came into the prison. Well, last but not least, we received word 
that the warden was called to another prison clear across the state. The next warden who came to lead in that prison said, yes, in fact, he thought that it would be a great program. By God's grace, we had been privileged to enter almost every prison in the entire state at that time except one. Well, do you remember the warden who was transferred to another prison? The one who had originally said no? I went to that warden a few years later and asked him if he would allow the Christian Behind Bars program into his facility. Again, the answer was no. I sent the program under the representation of another ministry to the facility and the answer was still no. My wife and I again began to pray after worship each morning with this special request for one of the last prisons in the state. We said, Lord, we know that you can make a way for the gospel message to be shared with the inmates at that facility. We want your light to come into those dark places to those who seemed forgotten by society. We continued, Nevertheless, not our will, but thy will be done. The God we serve is a wonderful, kind, caring, compassionate, omnipotent God. He has time for each one of his children, as well as a listening ear for his children's requests. It wasn't long before that warden was called to another position within the Department of Corrections. The next warden of that prison granted us the privilege of taking the Christmas Behind Bars gift package distribution to that prison. God is so good. A reflection associated with this story comes from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 662. The enmity that is cherished towards the servants of God by those who have yielded to the power of Satan changes at times to a feeling of reconciliation and favour. But that change does not always prove to be lasting. After evil-minded men have engaged in doing and saying wicked things against the Lord's servants, the conviction that they have been in the wrong sometimes takes deep hold upon their minds. The Spirit of the Lord strives with them and they humble their hearts before God and before those whose influence they have sought to destroy and they may change their course toward them. No Means No, or Does It? was written by Lemuel Vega, founder of the Christmas Behind Bars Project. It is located in Bluffton, Indiana. Their mission is to share Christ's love with those behind bars, not just on Christmas, but 365 days per year. You can visit christmasbehindbars.org for more information. You've been listening to the book reading program by 3ABN Australia Radio, featuring Get Ready for a Miracle. For more information about this book, visit remnantpublications.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.